Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. So I'm praying that today this service would help us make a decision to be living sacrifices for you. Thank you that you assure us and renew us, that you forgive us and you restore us. Thank you that you purpose us for good deeds. Now, Lord, I pray, forgive us when we have not been who you've asked us to be for the sins of omission, especially this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this summer in the June of this month, uh, there was a man by the name of Zane Brunette that was in the Boundary Waters, and he was with his dog. He had a nice, larger-sized black dog, kind of of the Labrador Retriever look. The dog's name was Luigi. I can report to you this morning that the dog's name is Luigi. So the story has a good ending. The problem was, was that they were on a portage between Kawashachong Lake and another lake. It was a busy portage. And one person in the group thought Luigi was with them, and another person thought Luigi was with them. By the time they had brought their canoe and their gear to the lake they were landing in to paddle off, their calls to Luigi were met with silence. Now, this was a big problem because they were a long ways from home. Their permanent home was in Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul area in Minnesota, and Luigi was a long ways from nowhere and didn't know it. They stayed at that portage, which is a small path between lakes, for six hours calling out to Luigi. Luigi was in an area of the Boundary Waters where there had been a burn, so there weren't lots of leaves or needles on the trees, and that they thought would help them, and they thought it would help Luigi. The problem was, for as far as their voice would carry, there was no responding bark or reference from the dog. And so finally, after six hours of calling for a dear, dear friend, they decided they would have to move on. They chose a campsite very close to the portage. They hoped through the night they'd hear something or that his good nose would set him on track to finding them. It did not happen. So the next morning, in great sadness, after searching again, I'm sure they paddled away and left behind their friend. Well, you know, if you've been in the post office or you've been on Facebook or somewhere else, if someone loses something so dear to them as an animal, they start posting. And so if you're familiar with the geography of Minnesota, you know that above Lake Superior, there is a large, as it were, we could almost call it a peninsula, But it's not because it's bounded on the top by Canada. But there's this huge, very pointed type projection of land. They went all the way south, tens and twenties of miles south of where the Boundary Waters begin to two harbors. And they started placarding uh, posters all around, hoping somebody would see Luigi. All that was met with in the social media world and in the the world of cellular telephone technology was silence. There was no Luigi. As a matter of fact, a wink went by, nothing. Two weeks, nothing. Three weeks, silence. Finally, in the fourth week, on the 30th day, Luigi appears out of the woods, 39 miles away from where he started. So for those of you that were in the Boundary Waters this fall, you know this is a tremendous distance. 39 miles away at Loon Lake, a very skinny dog appears out of the woods with broken toenails, skin and bones, and there is a lady. Zane calls her Sweet 
Marie. This lady is staying in a resort at Loon Lake, and she recognizes something's not right about this. Dogs just don't appear out of nowhere when you're already in the nowhere. And she gets out a piece of cheese, and for the next 20 minutes, she is trying to summon the dog to trust her. Eventually, his gauntness, he has lost 30 pounds. Eventually, his gauntness and his hunger overcomes his fear, and the dog gets close enough to where he indulges not only in the initial piece of cheese, but a variety of other foods, which were to him a wonderful uh, change of circumstance. She does what all people do with lost dogs. She looks for some kind of tag, and sure enough, uh, she finds something, but it's not enough. So she calls the sheriff's office, and the sheriff, now thinking back through the annals of registered uh, statements of loss, remembers that there was a black dog reported missing a month ago. Sure enough, he finds one of the posters, he calls down to Minneapolis, and Zane Brunette is in his car, rapidly traveling the four to five hours up to the portion of the Boundary Waters where this dog can be found. When he arrives at Loon Lake and Sweet Marie with Luigi, the black dog, see him, the dog just wiggles and cries and his owner cries. Now, in the Bible times, it doesn't appear there was as much natural affection shared between dogs and people. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but I know one of my earliest memories is as a young person with family, two black poodles, probably a Thanksgiving celebration, one of them wanders out into the dark night of Peoria, Illinois, and we spent hours walking and driving up and down the streets trying to find that black dog. It was an old black dog. It was mainly blind. It was a sad ending to that story, which I won't go into. How many times have you lost a pet? I know once I was in Wisconsin in the uh, Stoughton area, and we had a little Shetland sheepdog, a little mini collie. The dog had gotten out of the car, and we left not knowing the dog was gone. For a few brief moments prior to having children, our only child, as it was, was somewhere where we were hoping somebody with kindness would find her. We were reunited. I want to tell you this morning that the Bible says that a righteous man hath regard for his animals. I want to tell you this morning that your children owning a pet is a big deal to the development of the affectionate side of their heart. I want to assure you this morning that God loves the animals. And in the middle of the main commandment, he says, and the cattle, all right? You, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, your oxen, they get on the list before the stranger that's within thy gates. And while we drag the whole animal world down, I believe Jesus will at one point in time lift them back up since they had nothing to do with the problems that were created by the stewards of this earth. This morning, though, I have a little challenge that I need to present to my brothers and sisters both here locally and for those that tune in to listen. And that is that somehow I think we've fallen into the trap of the publicans who love their own, but not the plan of Christ for the Christians who are to love the ones God brings into their lives. So this morning, I want to look at a story in the Bible that actually has a good ending, but it would have been all right with 12 men if it wouldn't have had the same outcome. Take your Bibles this morning and open up to the story of a woman from the region of Tyre. 
and Sidon. Syrophoenicia is the general area. Matthew chapter 15 is the place in the Bible. And I want to look at a story that appears to be exceptionally intentional in the eyes of heaven. There are four healings of non-Jewish people told in the Bible. There is the story of the nobleman's son. There is the story of the demon-possessed man in the Gergesene area. There are these stories of individuals who receive attention from Jesus. Of course, his primary course of action was to redeem and restore the covenant relationship with his own people that they might go in search of the lost. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, we have Jesus who's attempting to get away from the masses to only be found by someone in great need. He's in the northern region of the area of Palestine, and he is going to slip farther away from the Jewish culture into the region of the Canaanites. Verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, while there is some things that are shared in culture between those who lived in the northern realms of Tyre and Sidon, there is much that is not. And many Jews lived in this area, and certainly from those Jews, certain stories of Jesus were being told. But Jesus was hoping for a little quiet and rest, but he didn't get it exactly like the disciples thought he should. Verse 22, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out. She began to cry out, saying, have mercy upon me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, these are the 12 disciples. They're not the 12 apostles yet. And I want you to think about that distinction for a brief moment because what we are and what we end up being is a function of who we hang out with. And when we practice the presence of Jesus Christ and he's free to motivate us to be who he's called us to be, inconvenient as it may be, we actually become like him. And this morning, I want you to know the difference between what they were being trained to be and what they would end up would be the cross, in which Jesus would make a very intentional journey to redeem the lost. He would, as it were, go farther out of his way than going to the region of Tyre and Sidon was to the 13 or more of them that were making this journey. This lady has a little girl, or maybe a teenage girl, we don't know, the story doesn't tell, but we know there's a bond of affection between this Canaanitish woman, ignorant as she may be. She has heard the stories of Jesus, and she can address Jesus in a messianic title, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So we know that she knows enough about the story of the hope of the Jews for a Messiah, and she knows enough about the power of this man to connect the dots in her mind. And I want to tell you this morning, some of the people you work with, some of the people you study with, some of the people you're exercising with, they know a lot more about what's right and what's wrong, and their journey is towards the cross, even though a lot of things about their talk and their dress and their actions may not show it. This woman didn't look very, she didn't look like there was an awful lot of potential in the eyes of the disciples. But Jesus actually makes this journey. It's the only record of any healing on this journey. And if you value the commentary of the desire of ages, you know he made the journey just for her. I want you to think about this. He actually placed the trajectory of his travel close enough and the call of the Holy Spirit to her was loud enough that this intersection is the result. 
And God's doing that with my life and your life when we let him. You don't have the liberty of getting up in the morning and skipping your time to be led by the Holy Spirit because you don't know how God's connecting the trajectories of your life with somebody else's life. And God has a plan, and he wants to do glorious things, but not all of us are willing to see it. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, when I shared this story with the upper graders at the church school the other day, I was just powerfully struck with something that I hadn't thought about before. The Bible goes out of its way to say that this girl is cruelly or severely demon-possessed. Now, most of you haven't seen a demon-possessed person, and I could wish that you never do. But many of you will. If we live to see Jesus come, we're going to see manifestations of evil like we've never seen them before. There are a thousand batteries that are hidden, Ellen White says, waiting to be unveiled to rain their bombshells down upon our Christian experience and destroy us in the very end from standing up. What the devil can't do with intrigue and plasma screens, he's going to do with outright persecution at some point in time in the future. And we're going to see demon possession and spiritual warfare come out in the open. What I want you to understand is that for those of you that have never seen a demon-possessed person, you need to realize that every part of their visage is changed. The look on their face is changed. The way they sound is changed. The total absence of rest is there. It hasn't been many times that the phone is wrong, and it rang more for sure when I was near Indiana Academy, when some of these young people, especially coming from other parts of the world where the demonology and the, the spiritual warfare is more out in the open, would sometimes end up at our schools. And for those people that are working in our boarding schools especially, we need to be praying and supporting them because they face all kinds of things as surrogate parents to our children. But when you hear the loudness and you see the lack of rest and you look into the eyes of these people that have been tormented or possessed, you realize it's a very sober moment. I can hardly imagine a little girl who screams out in the middle of the night, terrified of the dark in a way none of you and I have ever been. We know that the boy at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration would throw himself into the fire sometimes. I can't imagine the convulsions, the sheer terror in the eyes of the mother as she hangs on to a little baby that grows into a young, young woman, whatever it might be, who has almost superhuman strength to wrestle herself out of her mother's arms desperation driving her to anybody to help her, and nobody can, and finally she hears a story about Jesus. Now, I know some of those 12 disciples were fathers, and if it had been their little girl, they would have felt completely different, and if you really want to summarize this sermon, I'll tell you right now, that's what it boils down to. Is the little girl yours? Do you know any little girls like this? Your granddaughter, your daughter, your son, your grandson. Because the little girl was not theirs, and they never heard the cries, and they never saw the convulsions, and they didn't see a little child shaking in the dark, seeing something that the mother couldn't see. Because of all of these things, and because they saw these people as a corrupting influence to their lives, they didn't want to spend a single moment messing with this lady. They had no compassion. I want you to hear what I just said. They had no compassion. Their heart was not broken. They could not see a lady whose grief had reached the tipping point. But I want you as a group to realize that because I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, the Seventh-day Adventist church and many Christian churches find themselves teetering on the tipping point of not caring too. You know, a lost dog might get more sympathy than a lost person. 
We might be creating and have created an inhumane society where the government needs to take care of that or the pastor or somebody else. But this morning, I'm here to assure you that it is the compassion of Christ that is the motivation to somebody to draw near to Christ and to listen to something you have to say. But more importantly, it's the compassion flowing through you who keeps you from being like them. Twelve men. Not a very positive moment, but I'm glad it's recorded. Jesus did not answer her a word, verse 23. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. It's a pretty undignified, uncultured moment. And they're not too careful to hush their voice and whisper in the ear of Jesus. No, they're getting a little more bold. And by the way, this lesson wasn't too terribly well learned in Matthew chapter 15, because later in the book of Acts, Peter needs to have a vision more than once to go see somebody who crosses this same racial spiritual line. His name is Cornelius. So if we don't get everything right the first time around, be of good courage, parents. It takes a lot of touches. Be of good courage, pastors. It takes a lot of interaction. Be of good courage, administrators of this Seventh-day Adventist church. Do not give up. God hasn't given up. And this is a story where there's at least a start. Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. The in-between message is she's annoying us. Verse 24, but he answered and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's talking to her, not them. Although you need to know he's really talking to them. He's gone there on a purpose. The desire of ages makes it clear. He allows this almost ruse-like, play-acting-like encounter to develop to show the apostles, or I should say disciples, how wrong some of their thinking is, and that the gospel was not supposed to be contained in the bosom, the orthodox culture and lifestyles of the chosen. It was not to be retained there. It was to be shared for the hope of all the hopelessness that they could find in the world. There was a case right before them. And while it was true that he was not sent but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Ella White makes it very clear, she was one of the lost sheep that the house of Israel should have found and brought into the fold. She had an interest. She was willing to make changes and endure some privation and focus and sacrifice to find what it is that God freely wanted to give her. But she could see. She could see what 12 men couldn't see. She could hear it in the tone of his voice. She could tell by the look on his face. He, had, he did keep talking to her. And there is an old adage that says, you cannot not tell your story. And the story of Jesus was a heart of love for a lost race, Jews and Gentiles, for me and for you. And she could see behind the facade that there was a loving heart that she should not give up on just yet. And she does not. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's laying in the road, prostrate before Jesus, appealing to a heart of compassion, which will not refuse her. And good news, friends, he will not refuse you or me. And Jesus is no longer able to hold back. And he looks down at her and he says, Woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. We don't know how she acted after he said that. The stories in the Bible are so short. 
You should let your sanctified imagination run with this just a little bit. A large percent of you have been mothers. And I'd like for you to imagine that little baby who the first time gets all contorted and stiff that you can't love on, screams and cries and won't be quiet, and it's not colic. It's something much worse. I'd like for all of us to just for a moment wonder what this must feel like to this lady because she, like the nobleman, says, you don't need to come into my house, just say the word. And what was the response? We can't tell, but I can assure you this. This lady was on her feet rejoicing in the Lord, thanking God for his kindness, and on her way home to see it done. Ipso facto, he said it, it existed. And the disciples are standing there, perhaps with jaws dropped open wide, and eyes astonished that Jesus would consider to stoop so low as to meet the needs of one of these heathenish Canaanite people. Now, neither you nor I want to be the 12 disciples in this story, do we? But I want to tell you how easy it is to become the 12 disciples in this story. So I'm going to share with you an experiment. When the World War II came to an end, three of the key leaders saved themselves from trial by suicide. But there was one, an Adolf Eichmann, a Colonel Adolf Eichmann, who had been in charge of rounding up all the Jews out of the ghettos, taking them to the concentration camps, and overseeing, without exaggerating, millions of people, by direct influence and by direct order, millions of Germans cooperated with this man, and millions of German Jews and Polish Jews lost their lives. Now, in 1960, a special contingency of one of the Israeli armed forces found this man, Adolf Eichmann, who had forged his papers and disappeared across the Atlantic Ocean and it was known as Ricardo living in Argentina. He was captured, quite a story I hear, I don't know much about it, and he was brought back to Jerusalem where he was put on trial in 1961. What was going on, though, in the minds of lots of people as this was brought up to the service again is how could a whole nation lose its way so significantly that it would follow this madman mentality at the top and destroy all these people? Where could all their morals go? Yes, Ricardo Clement had been found, and his trial had begun. Now, there was a psychologist by the name of Stanley Milgram, happened to be a Yale psychologist, and on August 7, 1961, in Lindsay Chittenden Hall in the basement, he began an experiment which many since then have called unethical. But what I'm going to show you was repeated by many around the globe. And what I hope you see when we're all said and done is how easily we can drift into the compassionless, heartless, careless experience of the disciples who should not be compared with that of Nazi Germany but there is some measure of similarity we should probably examine, lest we should be more pharisaical than we ever wanted to be. So what did they do? Milgram put an ad in the newspaper. He found 160 volunteers. The premise of the experiment, in theory, was for learning and memorization. So of these 160 volunteers, he divided them into four groups. There was 40 in the first, the second, the third, and the fourth. What they were all told is that they were to pick out of a hat one of two pieces of paper which would tell them their role in the experiment. What all of the 160 did not know 
was that both items in the hat said teacher. The person that was going to be the student was actually another experimenter. So you have the clinician in his white lab coat with his uh, clipboard, and you have the other experimenter who the teacher, the volunteer, thought was an innocent student. But they were not. They were actually another part of the experimentation cycle. Now, how this was going to work was they were going to give the student opportunity to answer questions. If the student got the question wrong or refused to answer, the student was to receive a shock. And there at the control box, marked in 15-volt increments, was a shock plate. And the only person that got shocked in this experiment was the actual volunteer. They received a 15-volt shock, the lowest shock you could get. So they knew a little bit about what this was going to feel like. But in order to make sure that every volunteer, that is the teacher in this experiment, which was of the 160, they label the control box very carefully in regards to how much shock it would give. So when you were looking at it from 15 to 75 volts, it was labeled slight shock. When it went up from 75 to 125 volts, moderate shock. When it went from 135 to 180 volts, strong shock, and then it went to very strong shock, intense shock, extremely intense shock. Then you got up to the last two stages, 375 to 420 volts, and it said danger, severe shock, and finally, the last, the last switch to flip had above it painted in red, XXX. So they knew what they were doing. Now, those four groups were somewhat different in how they pulled off the experiment. Now, they had an idea before they started that 2 to 3% of the, the teachers in the role, the volunteers, they thought 2 to 3% would go all the way and flip the triple X in red, killing someone. They thought that those people would show psychopathic tendencies, which means have absolutely no connection to their feelings in regards to what they're doing. It turned out to be a little bit different, and that's what I want to talk with you about because I think it's very possible for us more concerned for our furry friends and actually create an inhumane society than any of us ever intended to do. I think it's actually possible that we could sit in our pews Sabbath by Sabbath and become less like Jesus with every day. That's why I'm talking to you. So the first group, the clinician with his white lab coat and his clipboard, stood by the teacher who was the volunteer and they brought in the student who was, you remember, another one of the experimenters. And they sat down together and they started asking questions. And when the student got it wrong, the volunteer who was the teacher would take his hand and put it on the shock plate and he would flip the switch. And when the student could see, I should say when the teacher could see what it was doing to the student, it bothered them. They did a few more. Then they went to a different group. The teacher was no longer sitting by the student. Now the student was in the room, but he was a little farther away, so the shocks were administered with a little bit of distance. But then they made a decision that changed the way the experiment would come off. The third group of 40 actually could not see the person that was being shocked, but they could still hear them. And while they were going through this, the person that was being shocked, so-called, would cry out, this hurts, 
Stop, my heart feels funny. Let me out of here. And all along the way, the teacher would look at the clinician and they would say, should we continue? And the clinician would say, please continue. Then sweat would build up on their brow and they'd get kind of fidgety as they kept turning the knob up on how bad the shocks were and the cries and the screams from the other room. Of course, I should tell you, the last group of 40, they couldn't hear what was happening in the other room. They could just hear somebody beating on the walls. They'd come to their third request to halt, and the scientist standing in the lab coat would say to the teacher who was the volunteer, it's absolutely essential that you continue. And finally, at the fourth request to quit, the person was feeling uncomfortable how high the shock was going. The, the teacher, I, I should say the clinician in his white lab coat would say, you have no other choice, you must go on. What the people that were adjusting the knobs didn't know, if they would have objected one more time, the experiment would have ended. So the question was, how far would they go? Well, you might have an idea in your own mind of how this turned out. The people that were in the room, the ones sitting right next to the person controlling the level of the shock, those people dropped out of the experiment a whole lot sooner. A lot of them said, I'm not going to keep doing this. The people who at least could see them in the room, same thing. But when they started removing the people from the sight of those that were administering the shock, an amazing thing changed. And of those last two groups of 80 people, 65% moved the dial all the way to red, X, X, X. And for all they knew, 80 people walked home that day thinking they had killed someone. Now, obviously, after a little bit of time, they explained that this wasn't the case. But the horrifying part about the whole thing was that of those 80 persons, after the experiment was unveiled, not a single one of them expressed any concern about their own culpability in what they did. They blamed it on the man in the lab coat. They insisted they should not be held responsible. Not a single volunteer in that upper two tiers of 80 people showed any concern for how the student's well-being was. Nobody asked to look in the other room. They were all concerned about their own skin. Some even justified themselves by blaming the scientists or the experimenters and one person even said of the person receiving the shock before it was all unveiled, he was so stupid and stubborn he deserved to be shocked. But would you be surprised that of all those who stopped early, most of them felt accountable to a greater moral imperative? Of the ones who stepped out of the experiment more prematurely, they all felt accountable to a higher authority. Now, I want to draw a brief lesson from this for your application for me and for you. There's something in life called abstraction. You know, the root word being abstract. Something that's just a little bit vague, not personal, not detailed. What happened when they moved the people out of the sight of those administering the shock is that it became much easier to administer the shock and go farther than they ever thought they could go. 
What happens in a business or a school or a culture is that the farther one is removed from personally understanding the ramifications of their decisions, the more willing they are to go beyond what their moral value system would usually limit them in. That's one of the reasons that writing in the in the many books of the spirit of prophecy, we are told that our institutions should not grow too large because it's easy when you are separated by multiple layers of administration. Business works this way now. We've gotten so efficient that a few people with lots of power can control many layers in our, in our commerce economy that we're in. And one CFO in one conversation, one CEO can wipe out thousands of people's livelihoods with layoffs and firings. You see, when you get into the area of distract, abstraction, when those are those people, I don't know. I don't know their names. I don't know their kids. I don't know about what they love and what they hate. I know nothing about them. It's much easier for me to separate myself from any personal concern for them. And you say, well, pastor, how does that apply to the church? Well, let's come back to the 12, could we? It would appear to me that they had practiced quite thoroughly a culture that had protected them in right doing. They didn't want to do anything wrong. And like the experimenters, when it was all done, they just wanted to make sure they knew, the experimenter knew that it wasn't their fault. I just followed your directions. A little bit like Adolf Eichmann's millions of German citizens and soldiers in the army who went ahead and flipped switches they never would have flipped. Abstraction and the Christian are deadly combinations to where I could come and sit in this pew Sabbath or stand behind this pulpit, but I could watch the world go to hell, and it doesn't bother me overly, just like a little girl could, could shiver and scream and convulse, and it didn't bother 12 men who were disciples then, but who would become apostles. You see, when Jesus said that the second great commandment is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we were not to be drawing lines about making sure I was good and untainted. We were to be the vehicles of compassion and pity and tenderness reaching out to a world. And mind you all, we all know somebody who's sick or grieving or discouraged. I was recently with four self-supporting schools in Tennessee sharing over a weekend. And the leader of one of their accrediting organizations got up and said, if all you get from your school is knowledge, you got an incomplete education. I want you to listen to what I'm saying. Every trip to the nursing home, every mission trip, every moment when our children are staring into the faces of formerly addicted meth addicts who are missing teeth and the vibrancy of the flesh in the face, every moment they're dealing with a drunkard or a homeless person, every moment of compassion towards a suffering animal or something else is the journey away from abstraction and it is the journey of being the hands, the heart, the mouth, the feet, the voice of Jesus. That's where the transforming power is at. That's why in our educational system and in our homes, we must be the people of compassion. For Jesus said, they will know you are my followers by your what? Your love. Your love. And it's not the fact that I remain true to my own definitions of what right and wrong is. For Adventism this morning and for us, I think this is a call to stop and think about my neighbor's. And some of you are so busy that in the rest of your career, you could never get everything done. So this is a very inconvenient message suggesting that God might architect a divine appointment for you just like he architected one for himself. 
2,000 years ago in Syrophoenicia. You see, friends, it's very possible that a religious system could be running so ferociously and so intensely that it's singularly focused or primarily focused on itself. Not too many months ago, it was dark. My dogs were laying on the floor in my home. I have two dogs. I love my dogs. Neither of them are technically mine, but they're both precious to me. And I heard the sound of claws on my front porch. Well, sometimes there's possums and sometimes there's coons, but a dog's claws sound different. It's dark. It's rainy. I go to the door to see who's at my house, and there are two obviously well-cared-for animals on my porch who are used to dealing with human beings. And I didn't need 20 minutes in cheese. It's almost like they didn't know where they were and they were alone. And the truth of the matter was they were 11 miles from their home. But on their collar were a couple aluminum tags stamped with numbers, which were very advantageous for the reuniting moment that would come shortly, even though it was approaching 10, 11 o'clock at night. And so a call was made, and not too long later, a small SUV finds its way a long way from where those dogs are from and is superbly thankful to be reunited with their, really, their four-footed friends, their furry parts of their family. I've gotten a dog from the, the Humane Society before. Praise the Lord for this good work. That might be a good place to take your kids. Go down and help clean the pens. Go down and feed the dogs. Look into the eyes of those animals that have been rejected. I got a text from my mother yesterday. Sometimes God does this for me. And it's just a sad, sad thing. As a matter of fact, I just saw a text right now, one that makes me very sad. And we need to pray before we're all done. But I'm going to go to my mother's text here. And, you know, God does this for me as I start down a sermon this is what she said. I won't read it all. Why did she write this to me? She didn't know what I was going to preach. Weather is cool, 47 right now and a high of 59. I think fall has fallen upon us. Trees down here are turning beautiful colors and leaves are starting to fall. And here we have something just out of the blue, except that it's not. It's to make a point. And God does this with me to make sure he knows I'm making the right point. He tells me. And this out of the blue, not knowing a single thing about what I'm going to preach, she says, I feel sorry for the domestic animals outside that people have just discarded like they were dumb and didn't have any feelings. People are stupid at times. Then she says, hope you have a good day. <laughs> I'm not doing that, Mom. I'd sure hate to be stupid. When the path forward is pretty clear, it's just inconvenient. Do you know your neighbors, your co-workers? Are you willing to give them a listening ear? Are you praying for them? Are you teaching your children to? I want to tell you, Adventist education is complete because it touches the heart. It trains the hand. There's not one field trip to the nursing home. And by the way, friends, let's not violate natural relational law. I don't particularly like going to nursing homes. But I'll tell you what, if I went to the same one over and over again to where I actually learned their names, I wouldn't be dealing with abstraction and raw religious duty. I'd start actually knowing, oh, that's Gertrude. That's Emma. And limited though their cognition may be, they might actually get to the place where they actually start remembering us and looking forward to us coming. 
I want to give a shout out to our adventurers. Not too many Sundays ago, they were going around visiting people who might not get so many visits. This is complete education. And it's very possible this church and many other churches, by the way, it used to be that we had missionaries come around a whole lot more often and they'd tell us stories. That was limiting some of the abstraction. Our church has gotten big and we think it should all be done through indigenous work now. The nationals should, should proselytize the nationals. I'm telling you, friends, there's nothing wrong with that, but the world's plenty big enough that we ought to keep on caring, whether we send missionaries from Brazil or America or Canada or wherever it might be, and we ought to keep on telling the story because we can't exist with abstraction. We've got to stay close to each other. That's why coming out to the prayer meeting matters. That's why connecting with somebody around you matters because when you're connected, you more naturally care, and caring is the vehicle for your own salvation and for theirs. Taking our kids to the Montana Mission Project, or to Brazil, or to El Salvador. It all matters. Taking them to the soup kitchen, it all matters. Because naturally, we tend to look at the ones we don't know like they looked at the Canaanitish woman. But I want to tell you something. Jesus didn't look at me like that. And he didn't look at you like that. And thank God, his heart was touched with our grief. Jesus does care. And God wants us to be the vehicles to care so that we might be the people of God. So I'm appealing to you. God's been moving on my heart. I'm a very busy person. But I'm not supposed to be too busy to go and link with the people who live in close proximity to me. I'm not supposed to be too busy to slow down and listen to you or you to me. We're to be missionaries to each other. We can have abstraction in the church. You're wearing name tags today. We're trying to mitigate against it. Small groups will be coming, but there's prayer meeting and vespers and all these social and missionary events. They're all places where we fight back against just being a name on a list. We're a family. By God's grace, God wants to bring others into this family. May God move on my heart and yours to find somebody who needs a little help. Now, this song we're going to sing in closing, it's an old song. It's out of the old hymn book. You may not know it, but in one verse, you can know the tune. Throw out the lifeline across the dark wave. There's a brother that somebody should save. Somebody's brother, oh, who then will dare? To throw out the lifeline is peril to share. I know you got a lot to do. I know it's inconvenient. I got a lot to do too. But God sends us to the Canaanitish woman. God sends them into our path and ours into theirs. And may God give us a spiritual sensitivity and a heart to care so that we don't look like the Pharisees on the cusp of Christ's return. One last thing. Matthew 24 is all the signs of the times. Matthew 25 is how to live ready. It's going to the prisons, the homeless, the one that need clothing. It's caring. Listen, friends, let's be known as the ones that care. And may the lifeline be in our hands and in our hearts. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn.